0: An island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to me, palms to fan me and an occasional man. Welcome to episode 17 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. This time I'm looking at Ava Gardner in the Angel War Red from 1960, written and directed by Nonalee Johnson. Ava's co-star, Dirk Bogard, wrote in his autobiographical volume, Snakes and Ladders, published in 1978, that he was chosen to replace Montgomery Clift when Clift changed his mind. Of his experience with the production, Bogard recalled, We started off free from studio interference, in a semi-documentary style, no makeup, grainy, real, which pleased me after the theatricality of Litzt, and Ava, burdened with the label, the world's most exciting animal, was equally happy hair scraped back, skin shining, and a cheap floral dress, she made a perfect foil to my shabby cassocked priest. For a little time, we thought we could be bucking the system. But after the first 10 days rushes had been viewed by an astonished, not to say shocked Hollywood, we were ordered to reshoot and gloss everything up. Ava was bundled into a wardrobe by Fontana, and I was tidied up generally. The title, La Sposa Bella, was suddenly altered to temptation, and finally, incomprehensibly, the angel wore red. We spent a considerable time freezing to death in a Catania slum. Not only Johnson, our gentle director, grew sadder by the day, and finally, Ava and I lost heart and threw in the sponge helplessly. You couldn't buck the system. The Hollywood gloss might be part of the problem with this picture, but only a small one. Fontana's wardrobe for Ava doesn't stretch the viewer's credulity. If anything, the dresses, like a simple monochrome polka dot frock, a chiffon number with a floaty scarf for a cabaret scene, seem more like what a sex worker would wear than what many films offer. Too many films think that sex workers dress like a scarlet woman, those denounced from the pulpit, or like the one in the title— In reality, Ava and millions of other women like her dress with circumspection to avoid easy assumptions based on tawdry stereotypes. It's just a job that they do. Being a sex worker doesn't really mark them out as different from other women. So yes, it seems more reasonable to suggest that she would wear polka dots rather than ruffles and black and white rather than red. And as her character tells the priest, her family back in the small Spanish village in the mountains think that she's a dressmaker. She would naturally strive to be well-dressed. Maybe it's what her character had dreamed for herself. If we can find fault with the clothes, it isn't that they are too wholesome or too glamorous. It's that they in no way suggest the Spanish Civil War era. With every stitch sewn, they say 1960, they are too modern for the character. The real problem is that The Angel War Red takes a far too serious tone. Everyone overacts except for Ava, Without her, there would be no picture to speak of or reason to watch. During the opening scenes, the film seems ready to steal first place on my list of campiest film ever. But once Ava Gardner enters the picture, it becomes something different. So, for the record, the 1983 remake of Scarface retains its position at number one. Brian De Palma's story of exaggerated hypermasculinity within the, the drug trade still reigns as the most camp film ever for me. If, as Susan Sontag wrote in Notes on Camp, the purpose of camp is to dethrone the serious, then you can understand why the camp sensibility enters the picture. It opens with Dirk Bogard playing a priest, Father Arturo Carrera. He declares that he wants to leave the priesthood because the bishop wants to prevent women from entering the church if their elbows and knees are exposed. He would be one of the legion of clerics who left the church because of its shabby treatment of women. I mean, really. Not five minutes after he repudiates his orders, Arturo Carrera grinds on Ava's character Soledad while bombs fall. He had a lot of catching up to do, I guess. Then the plot turns on hunted priests, the Spanish Civil War, and a missing holy relic, the blood of St. John. The film muddies the factions, so you have to struggle to figure out if Franco's thugs or those who want to preserve the Republic are trying to kill it off the men of God. People love to cite Joan Crawford's tan pantsuit and trog as the height of camp, but we need look no further than a textbook illustration of camp for what Joseph Cotton wears in The Angel Wore Red. He wears a black eye patch with a black shirt under a khaki safari jacket. He talks too loud in his first scene when he's on the phone. He carries a case with four different glass eyes to suit the mood or occasion, including one to leer at pretty girls and one embossed with a tiny American flag for patriotic days on the calendar. I hate to criticize Cotton's performance because his wife, Lenore, had been diagnosed with leukemia when the production started and sadly died before the film wrapped. It's a wonder he could make it through his days on set. On many levels, this picture is a hot mess, but none of it matters when Ava's on screen. Joseph Cotton, in his memoir, Vanity Will Get You Somewhere, wrote of Ava in this picture. Ava, besides being beautiful and glamorous, was straightforward and indefinite. She was born to be an actress. I never saw her make a false move or miss a word. The pattern of life seemed clear and sharp to her, which probably increased her heartache when she was unable to make it work. She valued her privacy, and if she ever carried a torch, no one saw it lighted. She was almost too glamorous, hated making dates, but knew how to get a party together at a minute's notice. She believed that mornings were made for sleeping, and that the clause in her contract that allowed her not to be disturbed until noon was the envy of all actors. Acting is simply not a daytime job, she once said. No wonder all actors hate matinees. It's not hard to understand why her character Soledad takes so many risks to protect the priest with a bounty on his head. He's the first man she's probably ever met who just wants to talk rather than jump her bones. He listens to her. Ava tosses off exquisite sassmouth mouth lines such as those shaggers don't frighten me father. This film is worth your time just for that lone line delivery. In one scene when Soledad talks about her life history with Arturo, you could exchange sex worker for Hollywood star and probably have an intimate understanding of Ava's career, stalling around in limited sexy dame roles and limited estimations of her worth. Out of the city on the coast, she tells Carrera that she quit the cabaret. She gives a little speech telling him that he's the first person that she's really known. And you believe her. With everyone else, it was transactional. Soledad tells him that she feels as if she's a schoolgirl with him. This scene could have veered over the cliff into camp, but Ava infuses it with so much earnest sincerity. She tells him that once she saw her little sister sitting with a boy just holding hands, they didn't say anything. They just sat there holding hands. She looks so relieved to be able to just sit with a man and not have him pounce on her. But then he kisses her and declares his love. For a while there, though, Ava was able to choose a man without his desire taking precedence. She was 37 when she made this picture. You can see the traces of the hematoma she'd suffered on her right cheek after party revelers, no doubt mischief-minded, goaded her into riding a bull one night. After drinks, Ava had more daring than sense and was thrown from the bull. The impression is slight. It's almost healed. It's like a tiny pucker or a dent in her cheek. It would have taken much more than a bull to mar the most beautiful face that has ever graced the screen. In another scene, Ava enters a church now made rubble, searching for a priest in hiding, Canon Rota, played by Aldo Fabrizzi, a man who looks like a bullfrog. She's on a mission of mercy by bringing the hunted priest some food. But she was trailed by the military, men in uniform who pinched them both. Arrested, thrown in some dungeon, Franco's men threaten to pull out her fingernails unless she tells them what they want to know. Arturo confesses the cannon, also wearing a black shirt and safari jacket like Joseph Cotton. He would have looked less camp in a white collar. Arturo prioritizes reclaiming the holy relic over saving Soledad from torture. Right then, viewers see his choice writ large. A bit of blood and a gaudy piece of jewelry is worth more than a flesh-and-blood woman. Enrico Maria Salerno plays Captain Botargus, a sadistic henchman of Franco. He's obsessed with finding the holy relic. Back in the dungeon, Butargus orders Ava's arms up over her head, tied in a rope, strung around a winch, to hoist her slender frame off the floor. The commander starts to torture her to get Arturo to divulge the location of the holy relic. Folklore has it that its possession makes an army invincible. Arturo lies and says that he doesn't know where it is. Just in time, Vittorio de Sica shows up and stops the torture. He calls the scene one of colossal stupidity. He says, is this the way you wage war now, hanging beautiful women? Then he walks up to Ava and says, would you like to have a drink with me in my quarters? Leave it to a suave man to put the kibosh on torture, but also use it to make a pass at a gorgeous woman. At one point, Joseph Cotton summarizes the events thusly. Have you ever covered a civil war? It's like trying to make love in a revolving door. Again, the Hollywood gloss isn't the problem here. In the middle of a long march, when they are driven by soldiers into a confrontation with the Republicans, they stop for the night. Arturo has his arms around Soledad in a tight embrace. They may be starved, thirsty, and tired, but she wants some clarity on their relationship. What will happen between them? By way of answer, an old woman kneels before them, asking Arturo to hear her confession. Ava has fear written all over her face. She knows that she has no future with a priest. She says to the woman, what's the matter with you? Have you ever seen a priest with a girl in his arms? Soledad buries her face in his neck, blotting out the inevitable. She tries to get him to admit it. You miss it, don't you? Your wife, your fair bride, referring to the church. Interrupted again from their pillow talk with word that she's being summoned by Captain Botargus, she snaps, doesn't the shagger ever give up? There's that word again, shagger. It's a bigger anachronism than her wardrobe. No Spanish lady would have used the expression shagger. I wonder if Eva ad-libbed it. Although she didn't move to London until the end of the decade, it's possible she picked up some British slang. Certainly, she didn't mean it in terms of the baseball or golf association, nor of the military colloquialism for sheep shagger. I was waiting for her to call them punters next. But Shagger sounds like something she might have called Dory Sherry at some point or some other executive at MGM. When she sees Arturo hearing confession, she's gutted. Even the Pope would have chosen Ava Gardner over the church. But Arturo has already decided. Now it's not really a spoiler to say that Ava doesn't get a happy ending, walking off into the sunset with her former priest. After all, we are in the nadir period of women's pictures. We're not in the 1930s, when women could have their cake and eat it too, and not be punished for how they earned their daily bread. As the 1960s wore on, women's pictures disappeared from cinemas entirely, replaced by a testosterone overload of buddy pictures, war pictures, and westerns. The blood of St. John might be imbued with the power work miracles to save the lives of 200 men, but not one life of a sex worker. It's a foregone conclusion that she will have to die and leave the men to more important matters like killing each other. At the end of so many of her pictures, including this one, I find myself shouting, Ava deserved better, and she did. I'll leave you with an excerpt from Living with Miss G, written by her longtime friend and personal assistant, Marine Jordan, published in 2012. It was while we were in New York that Nunnally Johnson paid her a visit. He was an old friend of Miss G's, a sweet man with a dry sense of humor. Nunnally had been in the show and movie business since they invented it, which meant long before Miss G and I were born. I made the martinis and Nunnally said, Ava darling, as you now reside in Spain, isn't it about time you made a film there? Old friends or not, Miss G's look was suspicious. Nunnally, she said, I think you have something on your mind. You're right. A great Spanish part in a movie called The Angel Wore Red. A what? Nonnalee took a deep breath, a cabaret girl. Miss G's roar of laughter could be heard outside on Park Avenue. Nonnalee, you old bugger, you mean a whore, typecasting me again, huh? You know I've never worked the streets. She thought about it for a second and added, yet. Nonnalee's face tried to smile. Its location is Spain during the Civil War. You are a cabaret girl who falls in love with a priest fleeing from the fascists. Spain, screeched Miss G, a prostitute who falls in love with a priest. Sex between a whore and a man of the cloth? Her laughter could now have been heard in Grand Central Station. You've no hope, she said. We tried to make The Naked Maja, a film about Goya and Spain. That period was 200 years ago, and the Spanish authorities threw us out. What chance have you got with the Civil War that started the day before yesterday? Nunnally nodded his head and was not put out. We have taken note of that. Other locations have been investigated. His eyebrows fashioned two question marks. It could be moved to Rome. I like Rome, said Miss G, who's playing the priest. Nunnally's smile was sweet as Devon cream. We've been talking to Frank Sinatra. This time, Miss G's laughter rattled the pictures on the wall. Frank in a dog collar? Singing Ave Maria? You've got to be kidding. Nunnally said, MGM and I are only at the consultant stage. We think it unlikely that Frank would agree. We have Dirk Bogard in mind also. For you, honey, I'll do it, said Miss G. That is after I've seen the script and you've talked to Morgan Marie. Morgan Marie had been Miss G's business manager for some time now, and she loved him dearly. Miss G had been right. The Spanish authorities said forget it. The Italian filmmakers were delighted, and Titanus Productions took over. I was too busy to go with Miss G., to Rome for the Angel War Red, but she kept me informed of what was going on. Dick Bogart accepted the role of the defiant, passionate priest willing to risk his life for his faith. Miss G played the Spanish whore Soledad, whose only relationship with the cabaret was that she could pick up clients at the bar. Miss G liked the part. The priest, while fleeing through her village cold and hungry, his pursuers aiming to kill him, meets Soledad. She hides him. She does not understand what he's trying to do, but she recognizes a fellow human who, like herself, is defeated. As the days pass, she begins to realize for the first time she has met a man who desires not her body, but her soul. A man who is gentle, decent, kind, and caring. In turn, the priest, thrown into close proximity with this blousy, attractive, and vibrant girl, is confused. She has saved his life, and he senses an intimacy that threatens both his piety and his celibacy. If Bogard, Miss G, and not only Johnson had been allowed to work out the film the way they understood it, it might have been a fine movie, but it wasn't to be. Thanks very much for joining me. Come back next time when I'm talking about Claudette Colbert in Midnight from 1939. Thanks very much. Bye.